Hey, it's Bill Simmons from The Ringer, and this is a podcast called The Rewatchables. We have been doing it really since 2017. It started with how much we love the movie Heat. We decided to structure a whole podcast with categories, most rewatchable scene, who won the movie, Apex Mountain, what age the best. But here's the thing. If you want the full archive, you can hear them only on Spotify for free, by the way. So make sure to follow The Rewatchables on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio is just a MySpace guy in a Threads world. It's Andy Greenwald! How dare you? How dare you? No, I mean, you. MySpace was your 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 real platform. That was your real, that was your bullhorn. You uh, disagree. Know? Friendster. Oh, yeah? I did my, I've said this before. I think the best writing I ever did was in testimonials for people on Friendster. <laughs> did you ever write me one? I'm sure I did. Yeah. yeah Too I, bad that's lost time. <laughs> um, Greenwald, great to see you. What a special show today because Christopher Storer, the creator, director, guy behind the bear is joining us uh, on, the, on the show today. So we're going to have a nice long chat with him. Uh, before we get there, there's, there's always stuff happening in the world of pop culture mm-hmm. that needs just your very specific eye and voice. Just mine? What are well, you just I setting like me to, up today? I like to be your OC. You know what I mean? I put mm. you in, in space. I let mm-hmm. you make plays, get some yak. You're, but You're making it sound like you're the T-ball. You know, like you're the T no, for me to hit the ball. No, no, no. I'm Kyle Shanahan. Oh, so you, you, you get it most of the way there? And then I like you kind hats, of, you know. Like, <laughs> okay. You know. Work with uh, that. How are you doing, man? It's good to see you. How, was your weekend nice? Lovely. Beautiful, beautiful holiday weekend that was basically like two weeks because it was a Tuesday. Right. So it still felt like a holiday weekend. Oh, right. Right. Uh, I mean, this past weekend, this past weekend wasn't a holiday. Was it, it felt like one okay, still. Just Partly because sure I didn't I, everyone in this studio knows that because that my, my kids didn't have camp. So I was. Oh, yeah. I was O-O-O. <laughs> Is that out of office? Yes. I was just, ooh, with them <laughs> for like five ooh, days. parenting. <laughs> it was very fun. Um, I feel the need to bring yeah. the positive vibes today. And, okay. and Chris will help us because he made sure. the show of the year so far. So until Special Ops Lioness comes out, he yeah. has that belt. Uh, but I, I feel the need to be positive because I do feel like we were a little bit depressing on Thursday. Oh, and I have, I have a few more things coming off of that, as you know. Okay. Do you want me to do that before you get positive? 
Uh, let's, oh, do you want to continue to be negative and then we go positive? No, my thing, you're going to love this. This is, what's a, what's like, there's a zig and there's a zag and then what comes after that? I don't know. We need to, there's you an know, Andy. Right. Yeah, there's <laughs> me. I want to go one step past that because I do feel like, you know, I, sometimes, sometimes the reply guy squawking reaches me in my ivory tower <laughs> and, um, I feel like there were two things what's that were misunderstood. What's the box that you go into? What's the box they build for phones for like when they're doing like... The Faraday cage? Yeah. <laughs> That's what you live in. Yeah, but it's more of an ADU. Just doing 100% parenting. <laughs> Just pure liquid parenting. That's when you have a little bit to drink yeah. and then parent. Um, yeah, there, I think there were two things that were misunderstood because I did say, I believe, and I, I don't have the tape. Maybe Kai can run it back. I believe I did say, fuck brands. Yeah. I wasn't saying that I hate capitalism uh-huh. because I love commercials, both in the sense that they keep our podcast afloat, but also they probably will are what will save television. Sure. What I feel like people didn't understand is this was what you actually introduced this idea. We are not fans of the Mattel Toy Corporation and everything that they do. Yeah, right. Like I enjoy a product. I don't want the expanded cinematic universe yeah. of Thomas's English muffins. My my sneakers don't need a soul. No. Right? Well. Actually, they do. Well, yeah, okay. Because that's a part of a shoe. Nice but, pun. But like, you. they just, I don't need to know right. the values. That, that was the one thing yeah, that I wanted right. to clarify. The other thing is, I think people are like, oh, typical Gen X grumbling that things used to be better. And fair. Yeah. You know what you subscribe to when you signed up for this podcast. But my point about people deserving better choices, and I think wanting different things than what they're being served, to my mind is an optimistic point. Because I do think that quality material or more original material could find an audience if the system was set up to support it. Mm -hmm. And I would rather people optimistically be trying to make mass culture entertainment that is good rather than you're using their problem-solving brains to do that rather than using the problem-solving brains to turn Yahtzee into a Blumhouse-inspired horror movie. Sure. I mean, I, I think that also when you come out of a conversation like the one we had last Thursday, and for anybody who didn't listen and is like, what the fuck are these guys talking about? We basically were bemoaning the state of televised and projected narrative <laughs> culture. Yeah. And, and it was culture. coming out of an article that was in The New Yorker about mm -hmm. uh, Barbie, which apparently people love and is on track to make $95 million and is going to be this giant success story. And, and it's actually like, that's great. Yeah. That is great. I think the rising tide will lift boats and... I think Oppenheimer will do well. Does Skipper and have Impossible. a boat set? Is that what you meant? No, but, and then there's also like, as soon as that podcast was basically over, mm -hmm. I saw two movies in successive nights that wound up being two of my favorite movies mm. of the year. I saw Asteroid City on Friday. Nice. And I saw How to Blow Up a Pipeline on Saturday, which was truly my, a mind-blowing movie. Like just awesome. how well made it was is just so, it's so accomplished and is so free of so much of the bullshit that comes along with movies right now. So like it, there's... Everywhere you look, there's reasons to be hopeful. I think it was more there is like, there's, it's hard yeah. to be, it's hard to like find enough places to look. There's good stuff. There will be good stuff. There are talented people. The story of the state of the industry is only as, is only valid until the next thing comes out. Mm -hmm. and it can change completely and it can turn on a dime. I just think that through consolidation and through just the, the, the state of the economy and things, we are just are not, we're not getting the best choices. Right. We're not getting the best opportunities to see things that are good. The bear is a good example, is a good thing to be talking more about this week because the bear is good. Mm -hmm. It is objectively and subjectively and qualitatively, it is good and it is a hit. And I think that's interesting. And I think that's significant. And I think it matters. And 
I, I don't think all is lost, but I do think that we are losing a lot yeah. with the hyper focus on really telling the narrative story of brands. <laughs> I get why they're doing it, but we deserve better. Um, another thing that will give us a, a ray of hope, although a little mm-hmm. bit bittersweet, is Reservation Dogs, which mm-hmm. comes back in early August, I believe. I think August 1st, even. August 1st. And uh, the trailer for that dropped a couple of days ago or last week. Mm-hmm. But it was also announced that it would be its final season. Sterling Harjo put out a statement mm-hmm. where he was just like, I feel like I've said what I wanted to say with this show. And I, when we wrote the end of season three, we felt like we had really arrived at the place where the show should end. I feel like we've kind of attacked and, and broken down pre-ending announcements in every single way, probably coming off of succession. Uh, this, this was like a major talking point as to whether or not it needed to end there or mm-hmm. it had to end there or what, what happened in the show because it was ending. But uh, for Reservation Dogs, I completely see where he's coming from. You know, I, this show could go on for 10 years. It's fine that it's ending after three. I think he's, he's got the story he wants to tell about this specific group of people. And I can't wait for it to come back. I'm going to disagree with you. Okay. I'm furious. Well, you're a consumer. I, I am actually furious about this one. I, and I mean this with a great deal of respect for Sterling Harjo and his creative choices. And everything you're saying is accurate and true. But this is the one that has that really stuck in my craw uh-huh. and to, to a surprising degree. Because, as we've said for the last two years, now going on three years, this is one of the top three best shows on television consistently. It is also the most incredible vessel to tell almost any kind of story. And I adore it for that. And I'm just really frustrated that it's not going to keep going for 10 years. I don't know. But for more years, you know, it, it, it did not feel as tied to a narrative anchor as something like Succession, which I think, though it was also bittersweet, we said multiple times that it could start to get a little billionsy if it kept going. Sure. And we understand yeah. the desire not to uh, not to keep going. Um, I also think that if you read between the lines of the press statements, that it's clear that Sterling Harjo is going to continue to do what he has been doing even before the larger uh, national spotlight was on him, which is to tell really fascinating, really funny, really compelling native stories in a variety of mediums with a lot of the same crew and community and actors and sometimes even people playing the same parts. Mm-hmm. So I have the feeling that the Res Dogs expanded universe will continue to expand. But it was bracing to watch this trailer and it feels like a different show in yeah. the sense that suddenly yeah. it is about the end the end and yes. about these four kids bringing to finding closure in their emotional arc that spun out from their friend Daniel's death i think that it it, it it's it's interesting that we're talking to chris today because i've been thinking about this with the bear a lot with the sustainability of certain shows mm-hmm. you talked about narrative sustainability in terms of succession but there's also a a, a tonal sustainability and for the bear, it's obviously that intensity, which I think they made some inroads into releasing some pressure in various places in the show, like over the course of the second season. Although, you know, obviously episode six would suggest otherwise. But for the most part, I think that they found some like other notes to play other than all the atoms in my body <laughs> are exploding at once mm-hmm. when when this ticket machine is pumping out orders. Um, and you wonder how much longer not only can they do it physically, but also can those characters be in that state? Because that's not really mm-hmm. how life always works. And I think for the for Reservation Dogs, you could have told an, 
a never-ending story about life in this place and yeah. loosely about these people. But it seems like the story that Sterling wants to tell is about these kids who are stuck in between mm-hmm. childhood and adulthood and dealing with grief sincerely for the first time in their lives in a lot of ways and how they move on from that. And then this season will be the capstone on yeah. that story. And about staying or going. Yeah. And I think one of the things the show does so well is communicate that this is a place where these characters live. This community has been there and there's a reason why they've been there and there's these old connections and old relationships, some that have curdled and some that continue to blossom. And that's still a, a fount for stories for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, he's a filmmaker. And it's this also is probably hard because those kids are growing up. Yes. So like, and have other opportunities yeah. and he doesn't want to stand in the way of that. And this is also relevant to Chris Storer from The Bear, not just because of the FX connection, but they, Chris and Sterling are both writer, directors, and filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And that is a powerful itch to do different things. So I'm not I'm not genuinely angry at him. I hope, and I'm not just saying this because I hope he'll come back on the podcast for a third time. It's also just that, man, I am upset. I love that show and I want more. So we really like did this whole like the roof is on fire thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, sky's falling on Thursday. And you can take what we talked about on Thursday and be like, well, the only things that like make these guys happy are these relatively niche arty shows, mm-hmm. right? The Bear, Reservation Dogs, whatever. I mean, The Bear is successful, but you know what I mean. I just want to let people know mm-hmm. that other things can scratch our itch. Other things mm-hmm. can make us happy. And one of those things is Idris Elba negotiating with hijackers on a plane from Dubai to London. Mm-hmm. And they called the show Hijack. Great title. And it stars Idris Elba, and he's a negotiator who happens to be on a plane that gets hijacked and he negotiates with them. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty good. Y- you it's on Apple TV, by the way. You kind of feel like <laughs> the people created the show spent, got six months money to like do pre-production and they just bought a copy of Rick Rubin's book <laughs> because they were like, no, no, we told you the show yeah. when you bought it. <laughs> Idris Elba's on a plane. Yeah. The complete lack of anything else going on is pure. Yeah. And I appreciate it so much. I, 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 there are a couple faces that I think I recognize in the ensemble cast, but broadly, yeah, I don't know anyone. There's like an Andor guy as the pilot. That's the guy I recognize. Yeah. Yes, that's uh, that's Mon Mothma's husband, yes. right? No, her, her ex boyfriend yes, from childhood, who's like also the revolutionary. Okay, thank you for that. I wondered, but otherwise, nope, don't know. That's fine. Yeah, um, it's what it says on the package. Just open it and enjoy, and. Uh, I mean, I only watch one. I think so. They're 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 dropping these every week, and there's six. I think there's six or seven. Yeah, and there's like an element of real timeness to it. Mm. Um, I think, but I found this show to be like basically the Apple version, aka more expensive and higher production value, maybe version of really reliable. ABC or Fox thrillers from the earlier part of the century. Yeah. Where you're just like, God damn, 24, early 24 is really good. Or like this show on ABC, like not, not Grey's or something like that, but just like it has real network sensibilities and mm-hmm. in, in, in its broad appeal, but also has like a certain like, it looks like that, that plane set costs a pretty penny, you know? Yeah. The Apple's budget remains Apple's budget, but it's interesting the, the way you're saying because this could be so many different things. This used to be a movie. In fact, this has been a movie multiple sure. times. Yeah. 
Passenger 57 and Executive Decision. Yeah, like, Air Force One. Yeah. Yes, we've, this right. has been done. And even that makes sense for television because what is successful television if not just the sort of like the, the, the simulacrum shape of entertainments we've felt before? Yeah. Like we know what's coming. It's called Hijack. Yeah. So you don't watch the first half hour being like, oh, I hope he gets home to London <laughs> quickly. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, that's fine. It's so funny because the pilot's just like clear skies as we fly from Dubai to Heathrow. There'll be no problems whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also think that the, the, to talk about the show kind of does run uh, counter to a lot of what I generally talk about on the podcast or what I want because the things that sets apart the thing that sets apart a lot of the programs that we love, like Res Dogs, like The Bear, is you can really feel the soul in the machine. There's mm-hmm. someone making a decision or someone with a particular aesthetic that is bringing something, whether it's a song on the on the soundtrack or a, a quirk in the performance or just a character beat. That's like, oh, someone added that and fought to keep it in there. There's none of that here that I can tell whatsoever. And I'm not mad about it. Except I, for one thing. Well, because I, I did want to point out that like the opening theme and like the credits thing, I... I I feel like AI is already in Hollywood because I just can't believe anyone was like, that song rules. Well, it's just like a slow jazz ballad, right? Well, that's that. No, when it starts, there's a little bit of like R&B playing. But I mean, the 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 hijack theme song, which is a real song. I'm just like, so all the filmmakers got together with Apple's budget and they were like, nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) This this is middle of the road thing is what we want. But that's fine. I mean, the people behind it are newbies like this guy Jim Field Smith who directed it and is the creative partners with George K who wrote it he made a show I loved a few years ago called The Wrong Mans mm-hmm. that um, James Corden made before he started his late night show they've worked on a lot of different they're professionals yeah yeah uh, but, but you had sorry you had a quirk that you wanted to point it's not out. really a quirk it's just a one of one it's it's Idris Elba it's like That's right. it is you know we talk so much about stardom especially on the big picture where we're like trying to like basically like catalog what is it that makes Tom Cruise running different than this person running? Or what is mm-hmm. it that makes Julia Roberts laughing different than this person laughing? Or what is it that this person has that 99.9% of the people in the world don't have? Yep. And it's really, really, really difficult to describe. If you could describe it, then you could reverse engineer it, right? Mm-hmm. But you could take a thousand different actors and put them in this role, and it would be maybe fine, but it wouldn't have been as good. It wouldn't have been as... Why is Idris Elba walking so slow as he approaches the gate? Yeah. Like, why does he seem this? Why does he seem that? When he gets up, like, he seems like this. And he has now kind of grown into, I I think he's had this for a while, but he has definitely, like, grown into his, like, middle-aged looks Mm -hmm. and his haggardness a little bit more because he was... You know, I've I've read a couple of interviews with him where he's just like, I've aged out of Bond and also that whole discourse Mm -hmm. left a really bad taste in my mouth. But he's like, I'm too I don't want to do that. But he kind of has a later middle-aged, I'm tired vibe that I think really, really works for him. It's a Harrison Ford thing. Uh, It's a Liam Neeson thing. Uh, Those guys are obviously much older, but they're like, they're getting too old for this shit. But by the way, I can still handle this shit. A little bit of bags on the eyes. A little bit of like moving slower than I used to. Did you Google how old he was when you watched the show? I did. How old? How old do you think? What's your guess? 54. 50 years young. So he was 49 when he filmed this. So he's... Not that much older than your humble narrators. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that we weren't. Maybe that's what I'm responding to is I finally feel seen on screen. That's what I bring. When, I, when I'm on a plane, that's my energy too. Um, I, I got to say though, I will pretty much watch 
anything set in an airport or an airplane I, I because there really may be this. no other environment that I have more opinions about. <laughs> so just the first half hour of this show is essentially boarding. Mm-hmm. And you might think that that would be boring. Listener, I found that to be the most fascinating <laughs> half hour of television I've seen this year where it's just like, interesting, we're having a little debate about whether uh, overhead baggage mm-hmm. compartments are the property of the community or the individual. Yeah. You know? Yes. Also, um, this whether or not su- people with children matter more than people without. Uh, this know? will surprise no one that, and I don't think this is really a spoiler, but one of the things that happens early on is, is as you mentioned, Idris is a very casual flyer. No luggage, just saunters onto the plane in the last possible second. And then one of his fellow passengers, who I'm sure is just another innocent person on the plane, doesn't make it in time. Yeah arrives just as the this plane has boarded uh, whatever. It's literally goes, like a, goes across. a fake rope that she puts up. And she's like, I've put the rope up. Yes. I'm sorry, sir. And Idris is like, come on, who's it going to harm? And you're like, thank you, McBain. <laughs> but I will, it will surprise no one to hear that if I had been in that situation, mm-hmm. I would have been like, ma'am, rules are rules. They're here for a reason. Oh, you don't like anybody boarding late like that? I got it. I mean, like, I, I don't know about you. I'm I'm a real like hovering around the, the, the gate. I'm ready to get on. I, I I cosplay as a military person to get on first. Yeah. Like I I do not dally. I want everything I want everything run ship shape. Yeah. You know what I mean? I want everyone following all the rules. Because if it, if the plane somehow gets delayed on the ground, mm-hmm. not that that would ever happen no, in the United not, States of definitely America. Definitely not. Um it's not gonna like make me feel more or less anxious because I was on the plane for an extra 20 minutes because I lined up like as right. soon as I could. But if I get on the plane last and, you know, I'm stepping over people, mm-hmm. the overhead bins are all taken, yada, yada. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty uptight. Also, everyone's coming up to you, tears in their eyes. Sir, sir, sir your sir. appearance on the Bill Simmons podcast last week was... <laughs> sir, sir. I, I wanted to tell everybody that I love the idol, but I was scared until I heard <laughs> you. you showed leadership. Um, I also know that for narrative purposes... When you have a large airplane and there's over 200 people on it, you cannot humanize everyone. And the people you humanize tend to be very broad strokes. Well, if, like, but if, if maybe hijack season three, we just learn more about everybody. The tailies, yeah. that worked out great. Exactly. I, I think, um, but the reason I say that is because it excuses the very broad strokes people that it does show, like the kind of the harried mom or the whatever. It also does excuse the fact that I don't care how many stock footage shots you have of three people being a little concerned about the guns waving around. Like, this is an inaccurate representation of people in 2023 flying and then being hijacked. Right. It would not be that chill. (laughs) It's not that it's chill. Well, first of all, personally, I was a little bit surprised because uh, I was like, I it, from my experience in Air Force One and other movies, <laughs> from your experience in the Air Force, guns on a plane are really nerve wracking because if one bullet hits a window, the entire thing depressurizes. That's the only reason. So the idea yeah. that they've all got guns is is pretty nerve wracking. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, do you think? But then again, I don't really know how you take over a plane like strong language. You know what I mean? Like, well, you wouldn't be a hijacker. I would never suggest that. But there are a couple. There are a couple. Tough boys. I would just like, be like, who? Nobody wants to go to jail tonight, right? I don't see. That's my question. <laughs> I thought that you would be like, we rush them from behind. No, I'm not doing that. That wouldn't be you. No, I would probably try to talk them out of it. I'd be like, what do you guys? What, what white whiteboard? So you, you're like dream big, blue sky. What do you guys need? You're like Ennis and Die Hard. <laughs> like just in word and deed. Hans, <laughs> Bobby, 
<laughs> you're just ingratiating yourself to the people. I, I, I would say I that, would be lying about all my close personal relationships with people. Like the pilot is a bud. Uh-huh. He's a bro. Okay. You want to you want to go play? If it had been, we can go play Riv when we land in Los Angeles. I promise. If it had been a bumpy ascent, I don't think I, there would be any visual difference in me. Like whether it's just like a little turbulence oh, and yeah. then a hijacking, I think I would be the That's same. That's how you feel. I'd be the same guy. Yeah. But look, all of this is to say, yeah, this is fine. Do this. Like this, make stuff like this. This is fine. Yeah. There should be a middle brow like that is entertaining that ticks boxes. I'm enjoying it. Unless you think mm. Apple is just churning out mm-hmm. mass entertainment mm-hmm. for the biggest common denominator. You yeah, they, also saw another show that is only made for you. Yeah, and, and and this is really, this wasn't to call you out, but I this is all like to put you on the spot because I don't think you've taken the plunge either into the drops of God. No. But the only drops of God I recognize are the, the righteous gemstones. <laughs> Fair. And I'm behind, so I'm going to catch up on that. Instead of catching up, I'm too behind. I did, I watched um, the show that we talked about on the podcast six months ago where I was like, thank you, Hollywood. Wait, for did making you see the third episode of Gemstones? No, did I've only seen the first Goggins? two. Okay. I've not seen them. Um, and I mentioned it, and then, I don't know, it was almost, I felt like almost self-conscious that there was a show that was just for me. This, this is, And I didn't watch it, and now I have, and I'm going to continue. I'm just putting you on alert. Okay, I'm going to watch the show. Um, this is a an Apple, it's an international co-production. It is based on a Japanese manga. Mm. It is a French-Japanese co-pro. And it is about, I wish I could just bottle your face right now and just share it with <laughs> I know listeners. what it's about. I'm just letting you get do your bit. But no, so it's, it's about the, <laughs> the daughter of the world's greatest wine expert and connoisseur, who's a Frenchman. She's a French woman. And he, you know, sort of traumatized her in childhood by making her a super taster and like, his, his his strong opinions about things and he abandoned the family, went to Tokyo, wrote all these books, amassed the world's greatest collection of wine he and taught. made her a super taster, mm-hmm. had very strong opinions yes. and then abandoned her and moved to Tokyo. So are you suggesting this is a potential <laughs> path for me if camp doesn't start again soon? I, That's I, it. Frankly, I have no, I have no follow-up. Uh. Guilty. And in Tokyo, he had like a protege, a student, a young Japanese man who's also, I guess, an exceptional taster of wine. And the father passes away. And then his will is a taste test, basically, like challenging his daughter with whom he had had no contact and this young Japanese man to basically identify. They have two months to identify one wine. That's my actually my biggest regret about not having kids. It's just fucking with them from the afterlife. We're not having a will and just being like, guess what, motherfuckers, squid game time. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Well, you could still do it with your friends. Yeah, but they're not going to participate. You're going to be like, let's say I die at like 64. Okay. Okay. You're not going to, at 64, are you going to do Squid Game to get like my collection of Larry McMurtry novels? I could be 65 at that point. (laughs) It's true. So no, and Idris Elba will only be 69 (laughs) and he'll still be making these movies. So he'll win. That's how you do it. You would have it be like, to you, my friend Andy, my other friend Sean Fennessy, and you, Idris Elba. Yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> Please. To, to you, I leave. Compete amongst yourselves. All the Google Docs of my, my preparation for the rewatch. All the remaining Nicorette lozenges <laughs> in my possession. Anyway, the first episode is kind of humorless, but also it's about wine tasting in Tokyo, uh-huh. so I'm in. And, and thank you, Apple, for making these things. I still... There you go. I still... What a great brand. Still a brand-friendly guy What a guy great brand. <laughs> um, I, I just, you know, you know me. Like, I wish that there was 
it's so stratified that like, would it be fun to see a slightly more creative attempt to make a hijack with a little more humor or something or a drops of a drops of God with a little self-awareness? Sure, those would be great. Could there be a little bit more Squid Game in Drops of God? Um, I think there might be some. Oh, yeah? Well, the thing that I didn't mention that the pilot is that, that the daughter, in as a child, like he was like, he was doing the Top Chef quick fire thing where like blindfolds her and then it's just like gives her a little taste of things and she's like melon but French. Like moss. Like he's feeding his daughter moss. Okay. Which seems cool. And uh, but then as an adult not only does she not drink she if she tastes alcohol she has like a synesthesia like she explodes in color and, she, and her nose starts bleeding. Really? Yeah. It's, it's pretty hype. Okay. You, you're talking me into it. Yeah, until I said that her nose starts bleeding, you were uninterested. I Well, I think this will be a show that I check out. It also does have, you mentioned Squid Game, that one of my favorite genres is interesting and worthwhile shows filming in Asia that also need to find actors who can speak English. Because this show is in three languages, but a lot of it is in English because that's the common language. <laughs> yeah. And no disrespect no, to this guy like who Tokyo might be Vice too. It's this, like this it's one dude like, might be a genius actor in his native Italian, and he's he's like the dad's friend who picks her up from the airport, and like, and, but he does has to do all of his acting in English with this French woman, and he's he was your father, but he was a good friend. <laughs> now please enjoy this Spanish Rioja. Should we break here and and do have Chris come on? This Kai, how long have we been talking? Because. I think this is... Uh, we're about to hit 30. Frankly, that... Th- so this is what a podcast could be. This is right? what it's all about. I we have, watched some television. internal shot clock. That was amazing, first yeah. of all. But also, we've watched some television. Uh-huh. We did a little banter. We talked to a couple, you know, state of the industry stuff and done in 30. Yeah. Maybe... Is this what we should have been doing the whole time? <laughs> what do you think we usually do? <laughs> 70? No, I know. But then he's going to come in and he'll talk for 40 minutes and it will be 70. We think he's going to talk for 40. Yeah, what if he's just like, I'm in and out. This is the junket. It's possible. Yeah. All right. Christopher Storer is up next. It's going to be exciting. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, Right. To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. Andy and I are so happy to be joined by Chris Storr, the creator of The Bear, director of, of many of the episodes. He also reinvented the Scott Lick remix of R.E.M. Strange Currencies as he cracks open Sorry. an ice seltzer. No, make yourself comfortable. Sorry, refresh guys. yourself. Listen, we like your TV show, but you saved R.E.M. <laughs> so you are very welcome in the studio. That's very, very nice. Thanks for uh, having me, guys. This is great. Um, that we, Scott Lick remix, though, is awesome. It's Really it's a real, good. it's a real, real heads no kind of cut. You know what I mean? We're going to get into the music of the yes. show, but Andy, you wanted to start. Yeah, we wanted to talk. Obviously, we want to talk about season two of The Bear, which we adored. But I kind of wanted to start by going backwards a bit because yep. the impression that we have, and correct me if I'm wrong, was that the production, post production, and release of season one was kind of like what Carmi and the crew just went through in the sense that you had an almost impossible deadline, but you made it, and then it was an enormous success. 
And I kind of wonder if your issue a year ago when all this was going down wasn't too dissimilar from what season three of the show might bring in that like you did it once and how the hell are you going to do it again? So it's July. You did do it again. Season two is incredible. Um, Going back to that time a year and a half ago or so, how did you approach the second season of the show? Because you had the added weight of expectations and I don't think you had any extra time. They still wanted you to hit like an old fashioned TV show. They wanted you to be on the air again. So how were you so prepared to make the show that you ended up making? The whole thing's pretty wild because I think the one plus of all of it was that FX very smartly kind of made us flesh out what the world sort of was. And obviously, I think in any show that you're starting off, that's a key step. But I think Joanna and I found that we were able to put together what we thought were like, oh, this is probably what one, two, and three would look like Mm -hmm. as like a roadmap of where we were going. And it's funny because when we were shooting the pilot, I think everyone at uh, FX was like, this is kind of nuts, but we see that it's cool and you're sort of thrown in into this world. And we shot that, I think, in the summer of 2021. So it was still, like, COVID was still really mm-hmm. in the mix. And I think it was interesting because I think on season two, we were sort of like, oh, that was the first time we saw that person with their mask off or <laughs> got to really, yeah. like, hang out with <laughs> yeah. them because that bubble was obviously... Uh, pretty protective. And I think when we were making it, it felt fun and alive. And like Maddie and I would always say, like, we think this is really cool. But I think we had both been a part of shows or movies that we really loved and no one saw. This is Maddie Matheson. Yeah, yeah. And I think we were like, I do think somebody will find this and think it's cool. And I think once we finally got picked up and I think, let's see, we started shooting February 28th of 2022 and it, then it was on June 23rd. Yeah, th- so that's the that's thing that I feel like people cannot time. comprehend. Well, you know what's weird, man, is that it was actually kind of the best thing that happened because it just removes second guessing and it does feel like you're running a restaurant. Yeah. And, but it also put a lot of pressure, I think, on our cast to really like step up and I think, mm-hmm. you know, you asked like, what's, how's it feel to like going to s- with expectations and then everything and it's like, I genuinely feel like I wish I could take more credit. I think 95 percent of what people like about the show is the chemistry with the cast mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. i think it's because they are such wonderful i mean they're the best dude and i love them all so much and i think even casting it was a trip because you know a majority of them were my dear friends in real life so it was like i love them and they kind of love each other so i feel like you'll feel that on on screen a little bit so you knew a lot of the cast prior yeah to i that. think it was interesting the first two people that were like cast were io and lionel and like jeremy was always going to we always wanted Jeremy, but it was that weird period where he was coming off Shameless, and we didn't know if that was going to go yeah, again. Yeah, I remember talking to him after season one. He was like, I didn't know if I wanted to do another show. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, it's interesting to, to think about that he spent, you know, 13 seasons yeah. on a show, which now seems unheard of. Mm-hmm. So when we finally got that, it was like those three were, were together, and like Liza, my girlfriend, had worked with previously. And so like all these things dialed. Like the true X factor was Eben. Like Richie was the hardest person to cast because it's so specific. And I'll never forget like, we did a chemistry read with Eben and Jeremy, and I think Eben was in the middle of shooting Andor, but like couldn't talk about what he was doing. But he had some cool tattoos. Well, no, yeah. he well he looked. I mean, it was so yeah, interesting. Blaster in his well, tote no, bag. Yeah, like we saw we he the first time I saw Eben do this, he was in some sort of like shanty in a part of the world that was not ide- immediately identifiable. Yeah, Burbank. No, <laughs> no, but like literally, like with like mountains behind. No, him. yeah, and yeah. we were like, where? And I'm like, this dude is inherently 
the guy, like already, mm-hmm. like he's got it. And then their chemistry was just great, but he was also wearing like a tank top and just came at it a hundred miles per hour. And it sort of made Jeremy bounce back at him and they, they instantly felt like brothers. So it was a real trip to do that. And then I think when we were shooting it, the, the schedule really informed, I think the fast pace of the show. Yeah. Cause one of the things that was really great, like our crew also doesn't get enough credit for being incredible. Like they really are. Fa- I mean, everyone from our camera department to our art department, to our makeup props, everybody. And we were able to keep the same schedule every day, which was essentially like shoot all the scenes from like 7 a.m. to 3.30. And then 3.30 to 5.30 was like the food inserts, which is always kind of the thing that mm-hmm. sucks. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and it's and it's it's amazing to have like my sister and Maddie on hand to sort of hand, handle that and with the props And they like do scene. the omelet and do the chips and stuff oh, well, like that? I, well, Io did the omelet. Okay, wow. And that was amazing. like pretty cool because I think she she worked really hard on it. It's And it's like, you know, it's like sort of, there's a lot of loving references to all of our chef friends in, in the show. And that one in particular was kind of like a riff on Ludo's omelet at yeah. Petit Trois and who, you know, was great to my sister. And, and your sister, Courtney, who's a, yeah, a great cook in her own right and chef at John and Vinny's. Yes, and, and one of our producer. producers, yeah. And I think she she was able to sort of be like, okay, we wanted to do this. And what's, you know, how would Sydney sort of personalize that? And it's one thing to make that like when you're in my sister's kitchen, but then when there's like a hundred crew people like looking at you. So yeah. I had a lot of pressure on her. She she nailed it, dude. So Andy was asking you about expectations and I have something that kind of goes along with that, which is really about when a TV show goes from being, you know, something in your head and something that's yeah. shared among the crew and cast that you're making it to almost like a kind of more public ownership. Yeah. And I've compared the bear a couple of times to Friday Night Lights. That's cool, man. Not only in some of the tonal stuff and and maybe even some of the, the filmmaking stuff, but like especially like the way in which I notice people talk about the characters and feel protective of the characters and start to develop like almost like yeah. personal relationships with some of the characters. But with that comes, they're still characters. Yeah, You still want to put them through certain things and they can't just be preserved and always you know, internet boyfriend for everybody. But like, did you, did you have any moments in the making of, or the writing of two where you were starting to become aware of like, this is what people think of Richie or Sydney or, or Carmi? Not once. Okay. And I think it's because again, we had like, since we sort of have one season one, two and three figured out, Mm -hmm. it was really cool to not have to answer any of that stuff really, you know? And I think, Again, I think it just goes back to, I mean, Andy, you know, in production, like you just get beat up all day. Everyone's just, you know, like your time yeah. is always just, you're you're obsessed with time. So it's like any of that stuff sort of just gets covered and yeah. everything else that has to happen in the day. If you had had more time, maybe then the doubt would start to creep. I in. think so. And, or maybe, or, or if the season had been delayed yeah, longer. Le- yeah, or less doubt, but more like, you know, Jeremy said this thing that was really interesting is in the aftermath when you're like promoting it the cool thing about the show, like love or hate it, like it, there are, people do feel attached to certain aspects Mm -hmm. of it. And I think take certain things away from performances that maybe the actors weren't even aware of. Like Jeremy was like, man, I'm, I've been talking about it so much. I'm not, I don't even remember where, (laughs) what my first instincts of the character were. And I I think it's one of the cool things. Again, what I say about like 95% of it is the cast. It's like, they're bringing a lot of their own personality to it. And I think it just speaks to how, incredible they are that you just get attached to it and the friday night lights comparison is awesome i love that show so much man but there's also you know and i clearly you had committed to this ahead of time so you didn't want to rethink it but 
it's a radically different show in the second season in some crucial ways. I yeah. mean, it goes from being sort of knock around um, blue collar to white linen, or at least white linen yeah. aspirational um, in terms of the construct of what they're doing. And you have to have some confidence, right, in the overall story, but also what need, I guess the question in there is, you are committed to a radical change in the show from season one to season two before you even went into production on season one. How did you keep perspective on what you needed to hold on to? Like, what are your North Stars in terms of what makes the bear the bear, even as the restaurant itself changes? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it was also like me just wanting to be honest to why I made it in the first place, you know? And I think it's, because to me, it's less about a restaurant and more about sort of these people. Mm-hmm. And I knew, you know, I knew we were going to be slower to start and you were going to open up the world and get to know these people but I also kept thinking like dude if it's just people screaming at each other you're going to get sick of that shit yeah like truly selfishly like I was like I don't know if I want to like shoot scenes like that all day long and it's like you know there's so many references to other filmmakers I love that we were sort of like it's cool to change it up a little bit and like let these people sort of play around and get to know them but at the same time like we know it's going to get crazier again at some point and I think like you might maybe enjoy it a little bit more because you haven't been bludgeoned with people you know, screaming for 10 more episodes. Yeah, I saw you talking about like the the Hornsby song in the opening episode being yeah. like, it's okay, chill out. It's going to be like, we're totally. going to take it like down like five degrees here. Totally. You know? And I also think that's true of like, not just restaurants, but a lot of jobs. Like it, it goes from chaos to not chaos. Yeah. And I think in season two, because they're building a restaurant, it sort of felt natural to let them chill out mm-hmm. a little bit. And I think, yeah, that Hornsby song is great. Dude. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's so funny because it was like, you know, so much of the show obviously is based on, you know, friendships I made at, at, at Mr. Beef and my buddy Chris Zucchero. And I remember, you know, being, I don't even, I don't, like five years old or something and hearing about Backdraft filming in Chicago. Yeah. And Backdraft, Backdraft always has like such a specific place in my heart. And there was this great montage that has that Bruce Hornsby song on it. Like, it's really sort of lovely in the middle of this yeah. movie of them sort of driving around Yeah, that's Chicago. like the, they're doing, it's like all their, like yeah. they're firefighting and it's just like a beautiful summer in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. I watched a, um, a live performance of that after the show came out. I was like, I have not thought about Bruce Hornsby a lot. I think uh, you've had a live performance life. of Backdraft. I did. I, I went to did, uh, During the strike, we're all trying to make ends meet. Russell and Billy it's Baldwin dinner theater. getting back together. It gets kind of exciting. But there's a, it's a Bruce Hornsby in the Range concert from like 1990. And it Where starts was it at? I think it's in Chicago. Awesome. I'm not sure. But it's like, it starts and it's Hornsby and I'm familiar with him. But I'm like, I wonder what Bruce Hornsby's band looked like. And it pans right. And it's like, it's a time in America where dudes were like just way older. Very specific, yeah. You know, they like, they're like forty, like, but they look seventy. They, they're yeah, forty, yeah. but they, they look like, like they just yeah, definitely awesome. have smoked like seven hundred Benson and Hedges that day, that's and incredible. they're just like like the the session dudes who are playing with them are just amazing. I that's also blew Chris's mind. I was like, "Have you been keeping up with Hornsby? He's been no. making some pretty relevant records." Recently. Oh yeah, man. he's, he's still sending me like late period Hornsby songs. Yeah, Hornsby has a duet with James Mercer from the. Show. It's good. <laughs> look. We'll, we'll, we he still got it. We'll circle back. Hornsby still got I it. Still got End it. of podcast. One hundred percent. There's an interesting dynamic that happens with long running TV shows, and it speaks to what Chris was saying about um, people's parasocial relationship to the characters, yeah. which is we love these people, and and I think one of the things that makes the bear so special is that it's clear that you love them also. You and Joanna and the rest of your creative team, yeah. you love them as actors and you love them as characters. Yeah. How do you consider your responsibility towards them when you're crafting a season like season two where you want to you want them to win? Yeah. And there are moments that are, you know, frankly, why we watch television, like when Tina smiles yeah. when Sydney offers her the job, you know? And it's also why you cast an actress like like Liza Colonzias because yeah. she's in the background. 
and she can give you that smile mm-hmm. and do so much more. But so just in terms of the, the that balancing act of you want to give them wins, but it's also a dramatic TV show with very high mm-hmm. stakes. How what What's your um, setting on that? It's interesting. Me, Coco, and Maddie always have this thing that we talk about a lot, which is like winning is losing a lot of the time. Yeah. And it's hyper-specific to restaurants, which is like one service will be great. Mm-hmm. The next day can be fucked. Can I swear? I'm so sorry. Yes. Please. Oh, in fact, but you're like, encouraged. Yeah. No, no, but like the next day it'll just be fucked. You know, and it's like, you sort of see that in the building of the restaurant because, you know, like the construction and sort of building of any business can be relatively boring. But I think when you know how much stock these people have in it, even like the smallest victories kind of end up being these gigantic game changers. Like, for example, like I remember talking to a lot of my friends that were opening new restaurants or something and they were always saying like fire suppression and getting the gas on is always like the heartbreaker. Mm -hmm. I said when we were doing our season breakdown, I was like eight is like a shadow end of the season because for them that's when their lives flash before their eyes yeah. you know and it's like yeah. then the hard part happens but yeah. there there's like a nice version of this where it's like we passed the test the end of the season totally and yeah. I, well i think it's interesting too because at that episode you know you end like with fire and then we end the season with like cold and it's sort of back to this yeah. like fight flight and then the third response of stress which is freeze which i think is extremely relatable to a lot of people but i think when you put that in the scope of trying to operate a new business and be a leader to whatever your skill set is. Like the the smallest victories are everything, man, because the biggest victories are often the ones that you lose, I think. And I think that's sort of a little bit of the um sort of the outline we always follow when we're putting together a season. You know, the person who really has to hold the L in this second season is Carly, right? Like yeah. the character is the one that even, you know, you you get Richie's sort of redemptive moments when he's stodging, you get Sydney kind of coming to this sort of point of understanding with her father, you know, all these characters kind of find themselves in a new, maybe like place that they've been longing to be. And then he's fucking locked in a freezer, unable to experience joy and now single again, or, you know, and just at least obviously it has this like terrible moment with Claire. That's got to be an interesting conversation with Jeremy because it's like, you don't get Jeremy, like, Carmi doesn't get to come in and do the carousel speech in Mad Men. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? He doesn't get to come in and be like, tonight I cooked my ass off and everybody saw it was the best in the world. But, like, he seems like the kind of actor who embraces that. Um, which I, but you would have to have that because there might be other people out there who'd be like, can I do something really cool at the end of the season? Yeah. Like, everybody else gets to, like, can I drive around a love story? Like, No, it's a great point. Because I also think, like, I should also say, like, Jeremy's an incredibly gracious actor who, like, even when I, like, told him you know, I think this is what's going to happen. He's like, that's so fucking cool. Because also you get to know everybody else. But mm-hmm. I do think it is true of a lot of people. It's definitely something I suffer with where you're just like, I'm going to freeze and can't accept any form of joy. Yeah. I can't, like, this is, like, you know, when Joanne and I uh, were sort of road mapping like one and the two and the three, like I, she was like, when was the last time you had like fun? And I was, <laughs> I was sort of like, Whoa! Like I like it was one of those moments yeah. that I was like, and I and I I am grateful and I love my job yeah. in my life very much. But like there were, I was like, I don't college. Like, well, no, but it, 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 it is interesting because you're I took sort a of class like, on fun. I audited it. No, really. but it, it is this thing where you're sort of like, well, I I have, I have a great time at work and I love everybody. But there is that moment when you know you're on location, and you get home, and your place is all of a sudden very quiet. Yeah, and you know your your significant other isn't there, and you're sort of out of your routine. And it's like one of the first things we see in episode one, too. It's like Jeremy going home to mm-hmm. quiet, and yeah. I think that's. The moment that sort of says a lot about where he is in his life, especially someone that grew up knowing chaos is the norm. 
So when you have this Mm -hmm. girl come into your life that sort of represents maybe even like hope and something about patience and acceptance and like kindness, it's terrifying. Yeah. I think um, one of the most obvious challenges that you face in making the show broadly, but specifically the second season, I think is sort of convincing the world that fine dining is worthwhile, even in this economy, that there's a reason for doing this. And I think the brilliant way that you choose to communicate that is why these specific characters need that, right? You know, they need that order and chaos. And I think that's an interesting through line for the show's project as a whole, which is, it is deeply, I guess I keep using the word credulous of the idea that to, you can find yourself through work, through repetition, through self-respect and these sort of overarching um, concepts that people who successfully navigate kitchens preach. Is that a fair assessment? A hundred percent, man. I mean, look, I'm like a hyper anxious person. Like in my, like anxiety is a real thing in depression that I battle with all the time. And I think one of the things that I have found that sort of helps at times is routine. And Mm -hmm. I think that is true of a lot of creative people I know. And I think because the first season of the show was more intense and about this guy trying to figure out his life and season two, we sort of get to get into like what creativity means to people and what yeah. teamwork means to people. And like, I don't know that a Michelin rated restaurant is better than an un, you know, mm-hmm. like I think that's like a conversation I, I don't have the answer to, but I do think there is something about the value of teamwork and being pushed and finding yourself creatively and how that can lead to better communication in your own life. Like, I think you were asking about process earlier, like, it sounds like bullshit, but like, I am so grateful for this show, man. Like it's like in terms of the communication with my partners and like, like we have a good time, man. Like we're all considerate of each other and like, it does feel like a family thing. And I know that it's not necessarily always that way. So I think, you know, when you were saying like, how do we react to season one? I think the thing we really did was sort of like, all right, aside from what people thought of it, Believe me, like you can go on Twitter enough people fucking hate it that it's all good. But I do think when you look back at like, well, why did it, what, like, what did we do that was right? And, yeah. you know, there were some, like, whether it was like setting up the prop department and art department or how they pushed certain ideas or, you know, how Maddie and Coco furthered the story through the food. Like, we just locked in on some things that we thought were sort of kind of special. And we were like, well, that could lend itself a little bit more to season two. I was curious whether or not... You know, this second seasons of shows, especially shows that are like relatively successful or successful in any way, tend to follow this idea that um, you take this core group of people and then you necessarily, for narrative purposes, have to separate them. They have to go on like these individual journeys and then bring them back together in some way, which this show does do. But I also noticed that there was a little bit of a departure filmmaking wise in various episodes, specifically you know, I would say Pop had like a kind of almost Cameron Crowe feel. Yep. And obviously uh, the, the the Richie episode, like a lot of people yep. have talked about like the Michael Manniness of mm-hmm. it. And, you know, you, so as a filmmaker and as somebody who's probably overseeing like the visual aspect of this show, was it important for you to have like almost like the filmmaking journey be different than the first season and go off and try other things and then come back to the bear yeah. in those last two episodes? I think so. But I also think it was more, you know, if we were doing some of, a lot of the same camp, it's it's kind of the same as the yelling thing. Yeah. Like I was like, if we were doing some of the same camera stuff, like I think it might get repetitive and ultra boring, but also like storytelling wise, I kept thinking like, you know, they're in a little bit of a brighter spot 
So like, you know, Andrew Wade, our DP and our, and our, and Chris Dame and Gary Maloof, our camera operator, they really, and Jeremy Long, our, our one of our gaffers, like they really built sort of a brighter space. So yeah. like the bear is inherently mm-hmm. going to be a little bit of a brighter space, but also, you know, what we would find, like, I look, I wish I could tell you that it was like all well thought out in advance, but it really kind of comes from character. Like episode seven, for example, like we had so much fun thinking that like Eben or Richie was obsessed with Ridley Scott and Michael Mann. Yeah. So we were like, we're going to lend some of that to that episode. And then we have like, you know, the wonderful Molly Gordon join us this year. And I think like the first time that I saw her and Jeremy together, it was like, okay, we're going to have a hundred millimeter, a hundred millimeter lens and that's it. And like, we're just going to let these, like both of their eyes are so sharp and hopeful and full of promise. It's like, let's just let them look at each other and we don't have to overcover it. But I think we also knew that because Joanna, like, Pop is one of my favorite episodes of this season. I think Joanna just, like, killed that thing because I feel like it's been a while since we've seen just, like, an old, kind of, like, an older yeah. romantic comedy that's that sort of had... And by the way, talking about music, the one music cue that no one's picked up on, Claire and Carm, when they're in the um, kitchen toward the end of the party, we got Ira Newborn's Weird Science score that's playing, like, very very <laughs> quietly in the, in the background because it's like we, you know... Joanna had that great idea too that the party should sort of just feel like it's a representation of childhood and there's like yeah. super dog all over the place. And I like the idea of somebody at Disney who's like in the accounting department being like, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, by the way, they, I think like FX has just been incredible partners yeah. with that stuff. They're like, all right, man, you want a Hornsby song? Like, I get it, you know. Uh, but I think like the same goes for like episode three, which Joanna directed that really was about creativity yeah and you know her and io got to run around chicago and so many of our restaurant friends like donnie Medea and everybody and everybody at kasama really helped us sort of uh inform what that creative process is like and then you know for episode four rami directed it yeah and newport barra who shot our pilot came back and we knew it would have a, a different look and i think it's because joanna and i are usually directing and rami and i have worked together so much in the past that it was like you guys do like just make this its own thing because we also know there's going to be a bomb in episode six that's going to be kind of yeah. nutty so i think we want to talk about six and seven but i did want to ask you just a, two questions about casting you sort of alluded mm-hmm. to it before part of it is something you've already said which yeah, i hadn't yeah. realized that you had relationships with some of the actors yeah one thing that i i feel is kind of a it, you can make this blanket statement just like filmmakers broadly love actors but i feel like there's some who really fucking love actors and i get that sense from your show and the reason i say that is not just because you cast so well but you seem to you and your collaborators seem to just see into the actor's soul and think about what they excel at what particular ineffable thing they bring and put them in positions to succeed and and i i can't help but always think of eben when i when i consider that you know because you in his performance i see decades of never quite being the guy even though you know we've had him on the podcast he's a lovely person Yeah. Yeah, yeah but he brings that to it and I can't help but think about it when you have him share the screen with Olivia Coleman, you know, yeah. who is world-class actor. Yeah. And she's there doing one scene and she's doing it with him. And that guy can fucking hang. Yeah. And you're giving him the opportunity to do it. And he shows up on center court at Wimbledon to, to, to have that yeah. match. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, it. it's interesting too, man, because I do, like, I really am in awe of them. Dude. Like, like it, it, and I think you know, the way we shoot our show, we, it's like two or three takes for the most part. Cause I think we like it to feel nervous and especially sometimes with the cooking stuff, like take four almost feels a little too. Yeah. They're almost dialed. too good at it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think this thing, and again, like it's the kind of the film school of season two, which is like, you really feel some of the actors unlock each other or take mm-hmm. them to the next level. Like for example, when early on I was like, Io, I think we're going to see your dad 
this year. And, and I was like, and I was thinking before I could even say it, she was like, Robert Townsend. Oh, and I was wow. like, holy fuck. Yeah. Not only because Robert Townsend rules, but it's like, you know, Io and him had had a friendship, but also like, you know, I love directing comedy specials. Like it's something that I really like doing a lot. And, and Robert was always someone I really admired. Like he made Raw, but he also made Meteor Man and the Five Heartbeats. And when I was like, I don't know if he'll do it. And when we talked to him about it and we were lucky enough to have him, like him and I will just unlock something in mm-hmm. each other, man. Mm-hmm. Where you're like, you guys feel like you've known each other forever. And I think the same is true of Molly and Jeremy, but also mm-hmm. Eben and Bernthal, dude. Like, I mean, like, like Eben yeah. obviously is a world-class actor, but like, because him and Johnny have had this history and, and are dear friends in real life, there's like something about the two of them that, yeah. that, that they just keep going to that. Fake it. Yeah, I mean- No, it, there's stuff like, he looks at Bernthal in those scenes where he's like, he wants his- like approval and 100%. but it's never written it's just like him 100%. like hey man did you hear my joke like kind of like yeah it's so good yeah and then i also think you see like will poulter and lionel have this chemistry mm-hmm. that's yeah. out of control and speaking to the olivia thing was really interesting because i think when we were talking about that episode you know like you're gonna see who the chef is eventually at the end and you know she's sort of based on sort of like you know, like a Thomas Keller or someone that's like bases themselves off routine and has and has had has gotten their ass kicked in the industry mm-hmm. a little bit and, and come back. And we kept thinking, like, man, there's something so cool. Not only that if if it the reveal that it's a woman and she sort of looks like Nancy Silverton and kind of has yeah. like a great vibe and but a British woman. You know, we were like, man, if Olivia Coleman would do it, we'd really hammer that thing home. And we were lucky to get her. And I think this How much is, time did you have with her? So she can't She's like the coolest person on the face of the earth. I mean, like, it's so weird because you never know what you're, and mm-hmm. I, and I, and I have to say like every guest actor that came in this year was like the shit, dude. Yeah. Like truly like working for scale, like no one got paid, like came in for three days at a time that, you know, we kicked the shit out of them and it was the most fun. And I think Olivia flew from London for 12 hours and we shot her out about two and a half hours Jesus and then she went home. Christ. Yeah. But I mean, it, it was, but I, and I think, I think for, for newcomers to the set, they're sort of, at first they're kind of like, this is kind of wild. And then they're like, oh, this is so fun and so cool. Well, that's a perfect segue to the other question, which was one of the things that the show has done so well is bring people into the world who feel like they've always been in the world. And obviously part of that is people that you knew would fit in. Part of that is casting people who might be unknown to the larger public so that when we begin to know them, we know them for this part. So Molly Gordon's a great example where I I think I've seen her in in Mm -hmm. things, but I don't know her. And she looks, you know, she's she's lovely to look at, but she also looks like she could be in Chicago. It's plausible. Right. That was kind of a weird drive by in Chicago. I apologize. No, no, that makes a city sense. full of beautiful people. As a Philadelphian, I can say that. <laughs> um, but she fits. And so I, I I was curious about the thinking behind Six, where suddenly there you've brought in this rogues gallery of yeah. brilliant performers, some of whom are like Twitter faves, you know, or totally. just like people who, who who we have deep connections to and and feel a certain way about the decision to do that and whether it would disrupt anything, and then also. I think you've already begun to say what that was like when you were actually yeah. rolling on them. Well, you know, it's interesting because we wanted it. First of all, that episode was so fun because when I think when you write something or when, you know, Joe and I wrote that together and obviously it's like very deeply personal of mm-hmm. some shit that we had seen. And I think a lot of people have seen when you just have a holiday dinner that yeah. just goes to shit and everyone's trying too hard and there's probably some substance abuse and some mental illness. But as gnarly as it gets, there's also stupid shit happening everywhere like you know like there can be there something can be really particularly disgusting in one room and then silly in the other and i think when we were putting that together 
we really wanted it to feel disorientating and disruptive and distracting the way that you walk into a Hollywood, uh, excuse me, a holiday party and you're sort of like, who the fuck is that? Like, what's that person doing? Like, what is going on? Like, why is Bob Odegaard, why is Jamie Lee Curtis here? Like, what's going on? But then as you settle into it, you're sort of like, oh, these are all heavy hitters throwing fastballs mm-hmm. at each other. Yeah. And I think for me, selfishly, it was also this chance to be like, okay, we have to remember all these people, say, not too dissimilar from Bernthal in season one, where these people are a weight on Carmi or, or in some cases, like the savior to them. So when I look at somebody like Sarah Paulson, who I think is one of the greatest actors yeah. working today, that she came in and did that for us. And she was sort of this person that get to give a key piece of advice to Jeremy. Like that makes as much sense to, sense to me as like Jamie Lee just being a fucking animal. Because you need, because they need to be outsized, 100%. not just in terms of casting, but yeah. outsized in terms of the 100%. shadow they cast. Like on this is someone lead. that that they loom over Jeremy mm. every day. And it's, it's so crazy. The the Stevie and Michelle characters were like, I remember when my like I was like in fourth or fifth grade, but like my grandfather died, and my aunt came to the funeral from L.A. with this dude who was her boyfriend, and he like immediately the first day took me out and bought me a skateboard. And that's the only thing I remember about my grandfather's like entire thing. Like was like this guy who was like the coolest motherfucker ever bought me a Veriflex when I was like nine (laughs) years old. And like, that's Michelle and Stevie. Like they're the people from out of town who are just like, we got out of here, you know? And they're like a little cool and their words carry so much weight because they've got this experience outside of this nest, you know? hundred percent. But also it's like exactly what you say. Like you're anticipating this guy to be a fucking dick and he brings a skateboard. You're like, oh, he's all right. And I think like when we were, the other thing that we like to do on our show a lot is sort of like, or just in general, I should say, is like there is a little bit of a, a reversal to it. Like where you're like, I think Mulaney is so fucking good on that episode. He's in crazy. And like, and I and I think like people just hadn't seen him do that yeah. yet. And I think mm-hmm. when you really look at it, you're like, well, he's one of our greatest storytellers. Like, why wouldn't he be good in this scenario having to make a, a speech? But also at the same time, you're like, I haven't seen JLC go fucking yeah. batshit crazy like that. Like I haven't seen sort of like Gillian do that with Evan. Like I haven't oh, seen yeah. a lot of the the people in this. Like by the way, Ricky Stafiri, who's one of our best friends and was our assistant on season one, plays Ted Fack and fucking rules. And like <laughs> his first, I mean, like he it was so great because he's like, dude, my first scene, I'm with, I'm in between Odenkirk and Burnthal. Yeah, and like the and it was so funny because I think the first, I think the first thing we shot, one of the first things we shot of this episode was like Paulson hanging with the facts. Mm-hmm. And I think for a second, she's like, what in the fuck is happening? And like <laughs> dove right in and it was the best. How do you balance with so with so many, I want to say like just talented actors. I want to say big actors, but I didn't mean that in a pejorative no, way. No, I know what you mean. Yeah. But um, as a director, you are kind of a chef in this moment because you have yeah. to calibrate the ingredients to taste. Yeah. So what is the tone that you're striking on set to make sure that while they go big, this is a holiday dinner, people are high, they're drunk, yeah. they're angry, they stay within the bounds of the, the totally. meal you're trying to serve. Well, it was interesting too, because when we wrote the script, I think the script is like 35 pages. And I think the end of the episode is about 105. Mm-hmm. And it's it that's like a hard thing too, because I hate when, sh- like I, I don't, sometimes shows go too long. Mm-hmm. And it, but I think like on this one, we kind of earned it a little bit and it didn't feel boring to us. And I know we go a little bit above 30 a few times a season, but in the thinking about it, like the way... I think we love to run our sets is like, here's sort of the script, but like, let's add or subtract and like, let's kind of end here. And I think the biggest bonus of having actors like that, dude, because I know some people were like, were you scared? And you're like, no, dude, you're like pumped because you're like, you know that this is going to get fucking fucking crazy. But yeah, and it's like, as we were shooting that, and like Bob's the best, dude. And I think like, when we were shooting that scene, 
uh, at the table, there was just like, like one of my favorite moments of shooting anything. I think we had done two takes that was just sort of the, the fork throwing kind of starting to build up and everyone getting tense. And I think like Bernthal knew that we usually do about three. And so in between two and three, he like walked up and he was like, boss, I'm gonna throw this fucking table. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I was like, throw that table, my dude. <laughs> so like, but it was great. And I also think like that episode in particular was great because you know, Io wasn't in it, so she served as our, she produced that episode with us, and she was on set with me at the monitor, with me and Joanna, and, you know, Io is uh, gonna be, like, probably our, one of our finest filmmakers. She's just so sharp. She's already one of our preeminent letterbox users. Yeah, I mean, dude, she, but she's, like, she's smart in a way that's yeah. kind of... Her reviews are great. Like, yeah, and, and, but, I mean, she just is so literate and sharp yeah. at all times that I think, like, having her at the monitor, like, she was the person that was, like, rein this in a little bit, or, mm. jo, you know, or Joe, or anyone, or Josh Sr. would chime in and just sort of be like, let's take this down a notch, but... I think the benefit of having all those people was it was going to get out of fucking control. Like so many things weren't scripted. Like when she, when Sarah looks at Jamie Lee and is like, not really. Oh shit. That like, fuck you explosion was really incredible because at the same time, like I know our core cast is so unbelievable. Like, I think it should also go without saying that like Abby's sort of the MVP of the season sneaky. And I think like that performance of that episode is sort of grounds everything. Like that last shot we see of her is, because there, there was a take where she was crying and it was like there was something better about mm-hmm. the exhaustion sort of being at the the end of all this crazy shit. And again, going back to the unlocking thing, like they all worked so well together, man. Like, because I think you were also saying like when you get n- more known people, mm-hmm. maybe this shit hits the fan or, you know, maybe someone's a dick or something, you know, but everyone was the best. But also there's an act of faith to it too with I'm glad you mentioned Abby because you know she was a, a an important part of the ensemble in season 1 but yep. you know she didn't have her own yep. arc or we didn't know, understand how she fit in and there is an enormous act of faith in, uh, you know I I overdo the like the show is the metaphor for the creative process sure, sure. but when 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 Carmi gives Tina his knife I mean you could go one of two ways. You could just run away from something that's an unknown. Can Abby carry those moments? Can she do these scenes? Can she be the integral yeah. part of the cast? Or you trust the people you you hired, yeah. the people you've come to know, right? And yeah. it, and I, it seems like that was enormously rewarding for everyone. Uh, of course, man. And also, I think it's like it goes back to that like generous, the generosity of everybody. Like the cast is so kind to each other and really wants everyone to, su- to succeed. And I think like a lot of the most alive moments. I think that's what I should have said. Like, we're always chasing things that feel like really, really alive. Like, one of my favorite moments of a movie semi-recently is in American Hustle. This is like such a bizarre reference to make, but like, there is a moment in American Hustle where Bradley Cooper thinks he's won and does an impression of Louis Mm C.K., gets a laugh, and then does it again. (laughs) (laughs) Which, like, whatever you think of that movie is like truly one of the fucking greatest things ever because you know that was improv and you know that he yeah. was set up to sort of create that moment and I think like that spirit really is what we were sort of chasing in in episode six because as you said Andy like everything else is so sort of locked down mm-hmm. the rest of the season like this is where we could sort of fully be out of control I was wondering for six specifically but in general how much do, of the of the filmmaking do you think we should be viewing I mean, you, you wouldn't do prescriptive stuff for yeah. the audience but is how much of six, for instance, is like Carmi's memory and like the filmmaking kind of is reflecting this is this pivotal moment in this guy's life. This is why he needs to make this cannoli or can't make this cannoli. But also like it's a, it's an inflection point. He goes away again after this. Everything changes. 
and so that the the way the performances are calibrated, but specifically the filmmaking yeah. is. I, he's not in every scene, right. but I almost watched that episode. I'm like, this is this guy's memory of this night of course, to some man. extent. hundred percent. And how much does that impact? Like, so even, you know, even when he meets Claire in the, in the deli or the bodega or whatever, and it's like, that is like the fucking most romantic thing you've ever seen. It's just this frosted freezer window. Mm-hmm. And it's like the, the idea that you're shooting kind of to reflect the interiority of these characters. hundred yeah. percent. I also think it's like, you know, chefs talk a lot about sense memory. So that episode really is, it's all noise. It's, and then in the middle of it, it's sort of shot like the bear. It's sort of shot like you remember first season. But, you know, Claire and Carmen, the fridge, we framed and shot that the same way that Jamie Lee and, yeah. and Carm are at the fridge, the same way that we shot Carm and Bernthal. In the, you know, so the, the, these things reverberate. And also, like, I think if you remember in season two or in episode two, there's a moment where they have to, like, cut a lock only for mm-hmm. Carmi to be locked away at the end like there are these things about getting locked in these memories and being like i said before like there's flight fright and then freeze, freeze yeah. which is like a really hard thing to talk about but also like visualize and so i think when Carm looks back on that like we also colored it differently like it's much grainier it's as close to 30 like we wanted to, we wanted to shoot 35 and it's uh, we ran into some production yeah <laughs> well we just couldn't we i don't think we could have been able to move. succession had used all the 35 yeah well film also we, the whole you know, budget got blown on totally, like totally. no yeah. we were also just like you know the schedule was so fast that we were like we got to keep rocking like, you can have weird science or you can you have can, 35 millimeter <laughs> literally you can have <laughs> strange currencies three times or you know this but um you know we also like i think one of the things we figured out about the show is that we normally shoot really long takes uh-huh. so we'll just roll for 12 minutes and have people sort of come in and out of the scene and you know that first scene in six where they're all in the kitchen was truly like the funnest thing because you're like okay gil you come in here evan like go tickle jamie lee let her fall like and it started to feel alive and sort of scary in the way that memories can feel sort of alive and yeah. scary and also faded a little bit i think um you're in a safe space when it comes to episode seven, um, Forks, because I think we both think it's a masterpiece. Oh, that's uh, nice, we man. love it. And particularly coming after six, the economy of it is really bracing and exciting. And, the, cool. and, I, and there's just clearly you give a lot of thought to how you course out the season. But I did want to use seven as an opportunity to get your thoughts on one criticism that I have heard about the season. I, I don't share it. I actually think it's a, a feature, not a bug, but that there's a fantasy element here yeah. that Richie, who the Richie we meet in season one, could he become a world-class three-star Michelin maitre d' after a week? Yeah. You know, is, is, is he uniquely special to have this opportunity granted to him and to deliver in that moment? And I feel like that's something you must have considered in the storytelling. Totally. And I'm wondering what your perspective on that is. You know, it's interesting because a lot of that episode um, was sort of inspired by some of my friends that do this, that run three-star Michelin mm-hmm. restaurants. And like Nick Kakonis at Alinea was really great to us and let us watch Expo. And particularly my friend Will Gadara wrote a book about hospitality and he wrote- Richie's reading that. Rich, yeah, which yeah. Richie is reading, yeah. but uh, and he also ran 11 Madison, was a co-owner of 11 Madison Park. And because, you know, some people are like, you know, well, that was so quick. And it's like, well, I don't know how long excitement passion takes like who knows like by the way richie could fall on his ass in season three but i think the thing that i wanted to capture was man when you're inspired whether it's by a job or a girl or something happening in your life dude like it's the best especially with someone who's been struggling with purpose and especially someone who's like this shit is so stupid only to find that like oh i kind of understand it like i kind of am into this like taking care of people is like a beautiful thing. Cause again, like we don't know what happens in season three. Like we don't know if 
it pans out for sure. him if he ends up loving it. But I do think when you are inspired in the right way, something clicks. And I think like the every second counts really means something to a guy like Richie. Well, I also just think fundamentally, like the core tenet of your show is that it's very big hearted. Yeah. You know, it is not ironic. It is not, there's yeah. no distance. And I, and I, I think that's underappreciated. And I think it's one that's of the cool, reasons man. why people respond to it to such a degree. And I, you can see it in, you know, in a character um, arc, like the one we're describing, but I think you can also see it. And we've talked about this a lot with the needle drops. Sure. You know, when you put let down in season one, totally. These motherfuckers. Like you don't you <laughs> don't actually reality. use the best song. You have to like hide behind it and you put the obscure track on the mixtape totally, totally. to impress someone. You don't use the one that will actually bring the house down. Totally. You guys always choose the song that is the biggest, purest expression of what people might be feeling or thinking or wanting to listen to. Well, it, no, it's your no, show. I was you gonna, should answer the question. No, no, <laughs> but it's a, but it's great because I think it's also like, you know, Josh and I do the music and we work with a clearance person that's great, and we sort of have really found like the turnaround again back to process is so fast that I think every season we sort of be like, all right, here's some music that we were feeling previously and particularly driving around listening to XRT and a radio station XRT in Chicago that I love, which sort of just plays anything and everything. But it sort of also is in the place where you're like, I don't, if I was just going on what this station played, I wouldn't know what decade it was. Yeah, right. And I think by having all these uh, needle drops from all over the place, it does it does feel a little timeless and a little dad rocky and a little like sort of lost somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you were worried about losing us in season two, you could do worse than putting the replacements in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're back. Yeah. We're, we're well, in. I also think it's like, you know, I, we're never, I'm never like, check out my musical knowledge, man. Like, you know. <laughs> it's just good. But, well, I, it's just like this is shit that we love listening. I did to. not know that Harmonia song though, the Bride Eno one. That was fucking oh, incredible. Dude, it's awesome. Yeah. That song's great. Well, also, it's interesting too because I, I, we, we have sort of found that, you know, Josh and I sort of uh, taking on like the supervisor role just because of time. Like literally, like we're moving so fast yeah. that it's like it just sort of became a necessity. We did find that it was something cool about connecting with the actual bands because we would be like, no, no, we're going to play the whole song for three minutes. And they were like, oh, that's kind of cool and different. Yeah. And we made a lot of great friendships that way. This is sort of a sidetrack conversa- uh, question, but would you, do you think White Squall is in Richie's like Ridley Scott Mount Rush? A hundred percent. Also, it's really hard to see. There is an annotated copy of the movie novelization of Black Rain on his nightstand. Yeah, it's deep. So he's a real one. He's a real one. Yeah. He's a real one. And even like his bookcase, which you can't really see, <laughs> there's like the making of Blade Runner. Like, yeah. there's a lot, a lot. In how there. deep does it go? Like how, like, is he Kingdom of Heaven director's oh, cut? Oh, Kingdom of Heaven director's cut. Yeah. I think he's, I think he's like someone to watch over me town. Yeah. You know, like he's, he's seen all, you know, it's funny. My, my, uh, naked. Well, you know, what's so funny. My friend, my friend Max texted me. It was sort of like white squall. That's all I said. I was like, it's the highest praise. (laughs) I think we got to get Richie in, we got to get Evan in character on the big picture podcast. Yeah. I feel like that would be his best. Well, you know what? It's also like going back to Chris Zucchero, who is my, you know, lifelong, like the first friend I ever made whose family owned Mr. Beef. Like, they were always so, his father who passed away while we were making the show was always so wonderful to my sister and I and let us hang out there and work there. And, you know, they had such an encyclopedic knowledge of hyper-specific filmmakers. Like, Chris can talk about William Friedkin all day and and Michael Mann and the spirit of that definitely made its way in, in, into some of Richie. I think one of the most remarkable accomplishments of The Bear across two seasons is chefs like it and chefs yeah. respect it. We talk a lot about how, you know, if we watch a show about 
detectives or right. the military, we're like, well, that's accurate. Yeah. And we're responding to the truth <laughs> yeah, of that. Yeah, we know yeah. what that's we like. We don't know at all. But if we yeah. saw a show about, um, you know, music podcasters. journalists or yeah. podcasters or whatever, we'd be like, okay, now let's shit. pump the brakes. I right. actually did that with an episode of In Just Like That recently. I was like watching it and there's like a podcast part and I was like, that's not actually how the advertising industry works. But also the they, were, like, like, you, so they were like preparing for the podcast ahead of time and you're <laughs> yeah. like, I'm going to call bullshit on you. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so that is kind of a magic trick because I, you know, even we were talking before about our mutual friend, Daniel, yeah. who uh, you know, could nitpick specific totally. things, but understands that the large project is true, you know? And, yeah. and I, how do you feel like you and your team were able to accomplish this? Honestly, man, I think it's because, and again, there's plenty of, don't worry, dude, there's plenty of people that like, Oh, I'm sure. Oh man, I get hit every day. I'm like, Oh, I can't look at fucking DMs. Like they're all just like, you've, fucking suck yeah. um you didn't let that fucking t-bone rest dude yeah, yeah dude everybody nuts <laughs> um but also i think it's i do think it's because look there's all kinds of shit we get wrong and and production is hard like you're like you know people point out like that's not lakeshore that's not the eden's fair. you're like yeah i i know we had two hours <laughs> we had two hours to get the shot and it was either that or nothing or whatever it is you know but i think like in terms of like the actual chef stuff i think it's we always wanted to shoot for like 50% accuracy. And I think the reason I say that is because like, look, the kitchen's gigantic because you have to fit a camera in. Mm -hmm. You have to fit sound people. Like a lot of the, the kitchen is much more generous than any of these chefs and restaurateurs can, can deal with. But I do think there's something about it that shows its heart was in the right place. And like we did try and so many of our friends and family were really amazing to us and like particularly Courtney and, and Maddie and their outreach. But like, you know, you say DP, Daniel Patterson, who is the chef of Qua and is sort of one of these genius level cooks. You know, I spent a lot of time uh, following him and Roy Choi around mm -hmm. when they were going to open local. local and watching they work, watching the way they work together was like really incredible and not dissimilar from the way Carmi and, and Sid do. So even if like we're not getting everything right, I do think the spirit of chasing that, like, dude, there was a day that I we were at some weird, like someone was hosting a benefit at their home in New York and sort of hired like every incredible chef in New York to come visit. And I found myself watching Roy Choi, Daniel Patterson, and Renee Rizepi like taste test uh, a chicken nugget that they were working on. <laughs> And the three of them pushing each other and like taking it very seriously was like truly one of the most inspiring things because I was like, oh man, those are like three guys with three completely different backgrounds, mm -hmm. all sort of chasing this this thing. And I think that really stuck with me, this, the spirit of that. So I think we're definitely very grateful that the restaurant community accepted us, but I also think it's like so much of it is due to you know, my sister and, and Maddie and people like Daniel in my life. Is there a little bit of a magic trick that has to happen with the food to the extent that we're told Carmi is this kind of like one mm -hmm. of one. Luca says mm -hmm. as much pretty much, you know, um, it, when he's when he's talking to, to Lionel. And then like, you know, as the season goes on and we hear about chaos menu, we see glimpses of the menu here and there. We, we Individual dishes will start to get tweaked or whatever. But we've talked a lot in discussing the episode where it's almost like the the reverse that thing you do problem. Like that yeah. thing you do can just play the song over and over again yeah. and they got the right song and you're just like, that would be a hit. That's yeah. right. But for Carmi's cooking, especially since food is so subjective, people have such wildly different tastes. Do you have to kind of keep it a little bit obscured what it is? Like what he's- 100%. Yeah. 
And I think that's also like, it, look, if we're luck, like if we're lucky enough to get a season three, I think we get into that much more. Yeah. But I think the thing that I found being around a lot of chefs too is that like the food is almost like secondary. Like when you're yes. building a restaurant, well, that's because like, when you, when you showed the menu on the wall, I was like, yeah, it's like a menu. Yeah, that's yeah. like food. Well, I mean, yeah. it is interesting because like truly watching, you know, like people like in a three star Michelin restaurant, they're changing their menu every day mm -hmm. and they do it at the end of the night, usually based on what they have or you know sort of what the routine is inside that restaurant and I at least it, what I've observed and I think when you're building a restaurant it's sort of like what you said about like people liking season one and then going to season two it's like you can't even let any of that shit in because you have to build another yeah. restaurant mm -hmm. so it's like you trust yourself that the food will be okay as long as the foundation is there for it also the majority of people the majority of meals you don't really remember the food that much past it. You remember maybe a dish or two or a taste, but you remember the night. And you I remember the company and you remember the service and the atmosphere and everything else that went around it. And I feel like that's a similar ratio that you guys bring to the show where the human stories and their emotional arcs and their journeys, that's what we're watching. And the food yeah. is just night to night, we're going to see it. And yeah. that's the, the language that they're using to communicate. Yeah. I also think we found in the making of it, like, Again, because how we do the food is like my sister is essentially running a restaurant within the show, yeah. which is pretty incredible to see. And she works with Laura Rop Laura Roper, our props department. It's like it is wild that they're building like a full scaled restaurant yeah. to sort of accommodate all the food stuff. And I think the thing we've realized is some of the you can go so into the weeds with the food stuff too. So it's like it is a choice to be like, all right, Carmi's good at this. Like they'll figure. Sydney's good at this. We'll figure it yeah. out, and we'll get into it later. Uh, we were going to ask this, and we almost forgot to, which is, so Maddie Matheson, cook, internet personality, larger-than-life personality, a friend of yours. Mm -hmm. But also, he's a really good actor. He's tremendous. <laughs> what, how did that, I mean, things can happen. Yeah. But, like, there's a, there's something of the way you shot it or the positions that you put him in and then who he is, where he's just holding the screen and present in these scenes with Oliver Platt, you know, who's yeah. doing God-tier work. And it's yep. just like... Oh, man, Platt rules. Well, no, Maddie. I mean, the thing that's interesting is, like, for, I love, you know, he's one of my best friends and I love him so much. And I think it kind of goes back to he feels really safe around the, the cast right. and the crew and everyone's looking out for him. Particularly like Ebby is like his acting coach. Yeah. You know, like him and Evan really spend a lot of time together. And I think like going back to the unlocking thing, like him and Ricky unlock something in each other. I, and it was so yeah. funny because when we were sitting, uh, you know, Ducho, Fabri, our AD and I, like before we shot, 206 we had to like lay out a chart and sort of walk through where everyone was sitting and where the special effects were gonna happen all that shit and uh i remember when we showed maddie maddie's like got it between bernthal and odenkirk fuck you <laughs> <laughs> like he's like okay got it everyone's throwing fucking heat and yeah I, okay cool so you you alluded to it chris you, if you're lucky enough to get a season three you can't say anything we feel strongly that you will get a season three not know. to break news to you but yeah, we feel well, pretty good about knocking it knocking on wood man, yeah. um It'll just be part of the larger MCU, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah like Julia Louis Dreyfus has owned the rest. I mean, we, the we got time. we got the Punisher, and yeah. we got I think IOs in the Marvel world. So that's true. Like... The longer this goes, they'll all be eventually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was. You don't have a Jedi though. I no spoilers to the Andor, but uh, <laughs> Evan has a different arc. Um, this writer strike, which is going on now, mm -hmm. um, obviously is going to affect whatever planning or pre production and yeah. writing you have for the season. Um, where are you with a potential season three right now? It's just sort of a broad question. I don't want, we don't want spoilers. I'm just curious where your head is at because last year you were probably, at this point. Yeah, you were probably like. You were already into it in season yeah. two. Yeah, well, yeah, what, I have like no concept of time anymore. I, I truly, because I think the turnaround of the show, like we, even on this season, I think yeah, we made it by the skin of our teeth. Like, but right before this, like minutes before yeah. this. Yeah, and I don't think anyone, you know, there, were, there was like a week where it's like the strike might 
happen or it might mm-hmm. not happen. And mm-hmm. we were like, we should probably boogie, dude. So we cut this in a like reckless amount of time. And I think, you know, I hope this strike is over soon and everyone gets treated fairly and we can move on. But I think in terms of season three, we have the map. For, we sort of know where it's going. Mm-hmm. So we're we're lucky in that. I mean, again, it's like, you know, working with FX was pretty great that that was sort of from the jump we knew where it was headed. I always wonder whether or not like the, I was curious whether or not like any of that, this delay or whatever it would be, like it would inform the story at all because there's so much compression for the first yeah. two seasons and so so much intensity and then yeah. there's like this weird breath and season three picks up four years later and they're doing fast casual. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like no, a lot of grain no, bowls yeah, no, no, I can promise no time jumps but I do think it's that thing of kind of what I was saying earlier where we, any, you know, we have, incredible writers and I think like and I think everyone kind of knows that we always leave room for sort of the unexpected and I think that's what we did this year but yeah I mean again the show is so insanely fast that a break might be kind of nice but you know if we it's a good problem to have if we have to do you got it next your next project you gotta go full terrence malick and just shoot it for like six years and just like go off and shoot a yeah leaf, i was like you know? know i know we i know we made our show you know in two months <laughs> pretty start to finish so let's take a couple of years and really yeah, you could try um what was that word you said fun oh yeah well you know what's try. interesting though dude i do know that you know everyone kind of gets worried about shows disappearing for a while and mm-hmm. you know that's something we think a lot about but i don't know if we're lucky to do it again i think we got a good handle on it. Good. And we didn't even, you know, we didn't even talk to you about this Don Winslow thing. Oh, yeah. You're, you're, oh, man. You're going to adapt this great well, Don Winslow novel. So if that happens, I, I, I by the way, I, I'm like, I don't believe anything to like a Mars set. Um, Koppelman and Levine, man, they wrote this script. It's one of the best things I've ever read. Yeah. And it's also like, it's got a little bit of a history of people trying to figure it out. And I think if we could do it, it would be. Spe- like special and and That's and exciting. but we'll see what happens it's about to be like don winslow season two right because there's because they like city on fire is getting made to- uh, yeah i heard oh, somebody i thought you meant because it's the election next year. <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> that's that's what i call election season or, don or season. you know carmy just goes full frankie machine yeah. in season three yeah, and, yeah, yeah. just make, bring yeah. them all together dude thanks so much for coming by thanks yeah, for having me thank guys. you for the show awesome. we just we're oh, you guys are the coolest it means a lot 